Hello, and welcome back to the Agents of Change in Environmental Health podcast, brought to you by the George Washington Milken Institute School of Public Health and Environmental Health News at ehn.org. I'm Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the Editor of Agents of Change. From our team, we'd like to wish you all a happy new year, and we hope you all made it through the holiday season in a safe, healthy, and restorative way. Cheers to a better year than the last. We're kicking things off in 2021 talking to Dr. Dana Williamson, a current Agents of Change Fellow and an Environmental Health Fellow at the US EPA Office of Science Advisor, Policy, and Engagement. Dana has a unique perspective as someone who has been both in academia and the government in working to reduce environmental inequities. We talk about how growing up in Detroit shaped her early career path, the importance of using a community's strength in addressing injustice, and how she is looking to science communication to bring her work to the people and organizations who need it most. Enjoy. All right, today's guest is Dana Williamson. Dana, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. So I wanted to start with a place that I know quite well, Detroit, which I know is your hometown. Um, Tell me a bit about growing up there and how it shaped your interest in environmental justice and health equity. So um, being a native Detroiter, you know, I love everything. I love my lions and pistons and red wings. But, um, you know, I think the Motor City is very popular for being the car capital of the world, but it's also well known for its deep entrenched history of racism and redlining and white flight and a host of environmental issues that really pervade the entire city. So, you know, Detroit continues today to be predominantly like a majority minority city with about 80% African-American. But what also isn't given much attention is that really the life expectancy of folks living in the inner city um, is like 10 to 15 years less than the average person that lives in the suburbs. And so there are real impacts um, of some of the environmental inequities and environmental racism that pervades the city. So for myself, growing up in the 80s, I learned that uh, Detroit was like on the forefront. And this is what's probably most impactful for me. It was on Detroit was on the forefront of the waste to energy movement. Um, and, you know, they created this innovative, innovative way to recycle their garbage to power the large portions of the downtown area and what's kind of known today as Midtown. But this was one of the largest inner city incinerators in the world at that time. And it emitted all kinds of horrible toxins that were especially harmful for children. And, you know, while the industry was supposedly a direct benefit to Detroit, they allowed all of the surrounding suburbs to import their trash into the city without any limitations. So not only was the smell horrible, but there were all these great harms from all of the toxins that you couldn't smell. So not only, um, you know, or just being in Detroit or as a resident, the, the, the environmental inequities that particularly folks living in Southwest Detroit they really had the heaviest burdens to bear for the entire city. They had the highest rates of asthma and cardiovascular problems and kidney failures and cancers. And these were all a consequence of living in a particular area of the city. Um, And unfortunately was really related to socioeconomic status and what the people looked like that lived there. So being from um, 
you know, the city of Detroit, I feel like I just have this uh, more of a, a personal understanding of what environmental justice is and what environmental racism really is and some of the history of inequities that have really driven me to want to be a change agent in this area and uplift the voices of those that are really impacted by these inequities um, and really advocate for change. It's funny you mentioned Midtown because it's it's odd for me to look back and see these rebrandings of Midtown and New Center and um, Corktown, which I think was Corktown for, for many years. And I'm probably getting the weeds here for our non-Detroit <laughs> listeners, but it is interesting to see what some of the downtown gentrification has done. Absolutely. Um, and I've done a, a fair amount of reporting in the southwest part of the state. Uh, there's a Marathon oil refinery, and, and and there's just some still some some really big bad issues going on there. Yeah. So you mentioned your position now. I, you, you're you're now with the EPA's Office of Science Advisor, Policy and Engagement, and I'm wondering if you can kind of bridge the gap from Detroit to where you're what you're working on now and the research and journey that brought you there. Sure. So it's been a very circuitous journey for me to get to this point, but I feel like all of my experiences have been extremely influential um, and really afforded me with the opportunities that I have. And so I think like a lot of younger folks um, growing up, I thought that um, I would go on to be a doctor. I didn't really think that I would be more of a expert or a PhD, I thought that I would be a pediatrician. And so um, I was medical school bound, but then after like two rounds of unsuccessful applications and um, maybe not doing as well on the MCATs as I wanted to, I was re- I was forced to reevaluate my passion um, and kind of reorient my career options. So I became, I became an EMT and um, an emergency medical technician. And hands down, I feel like this was the most rewarding but also um, the most conflicting experience in my life. I had the ability to directly impact the course of people's lives, um, but and it was exhilarating and helping other people undercut some of their desperate situations, but I was often placed in communities that were suffering from um, poverty um, or suffering from really a lot of social inequities and environmental challenges. And, you know, I saw firsthand as an EMT just how limited the healthcare options were and some of the differential exposures um, of those that resulted in poor health outcomes. And so my interest, since, you know, I wasn't necessarily medical school bound anymore, my interest in as an EMT really helped solidify me wanting to be on the forefront of disease and beyond just helping people individually and more looking at other determinants of health. And so that kind of catapulted me into the field of public health. So I got my master's in public health from Emory um, and I took a position at the Centers for Disease Control and I was there for a couple of years. And then I found my way back to Emory School of Public Health and I was a project director, but I was really um, fulfilling kind of the, and I was great at my job, don't get me wrong, but I was more fulfilling the, the vision of someone else. And I thought that I was great at what I was doing, but I really wanted to pursue my own interests related to health disparities and really get back to those initial passions, um, you know, and what incited me in being and having an interest in public health. So I wanted to create my own pathway. And so I decided to return to school once again and pursue a doctorate in public health 
behavioral science. And so my dissertation work was broadly related to community capacity building and allowed me to hone in on my early interests related to environmental health disparities and environmental justice. So I apologize in advance for this next question. A little peek behind the scenes. I, I, I do like to give some some frameworks to the guests, but this one I don't. And it's a big question, and maybe you've touched on this a little bit, but I'm wondering if you can identify a defining moment or event that shaped your identity to get where you're at today. Defining moment. I've had so many defining moments <laughs> because I feel like I've I've um I've kind of I've I've been able to navigate a couple different uh, professions, but they've all had a thread of health disparities and um, a thread of wanting to engage with communities and um, really just feeling like I've been given a lot in in my upbringing and I've been supported a lot along the way and wanting to give back to communities in a way that I can continue to uplift others and um, help to alleviate disparities and really be a voice for um, systematic and structural and uh, political change. So I'm not sure that I have one particular defining moment. I just feel like there's been a constant or a very consistent thread um, of wanting to engage with community that I'm from, engage with other communities, um, and continue to be a benefit and give back to others. And in looking at your 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 research and your interest, I, I see the term capacity building come up quite a bit. And, and as a journalist, my, I, I want to deconstruct that right away and, and understand a little bit more, more what that means. So I'm wondering if you can talk about you know, what that means to you. And when we're talking about improving environmental health and reducing environmental racism at the community level and any examples of success that you've seen in building capacity. So when I talk about community capacity or capacity building, I'm referring to an asset-based approach, meaning that it focuses on community strengths. And so these are the strengths that are specific characteristics of a community that can be leveraged to address environmental inequities such as centering on leadership development or skills development, focusing on um, knowledge and um, empowering empowerment, um, also aligning with uh, the values of a community or partnership, and even, even uh, focus on financial and social capital. And so these are all attributes that require partnership and collaboration and can be very instrumental in creating policy and systems um, and environmental changes that are needed in many of these EJ communities. So I had the opportunity um, with my dissertation work to evaluate the US EPA, Environmental Protection Agency's Environmental Justice Academy. And this is a leadership development academy that um, was able to attract people predominantly from the Southeast um, of the U.S., southeastern states of the U.S., and they were um, a myriad of people that were community advocates or academic activists and even college students, and they were all um, interested in addressing environmental justice concerns in their community. And so this particular program, um, I feel, was definitely a model for capacity building because they, um, and, and, and I would I would align this with being a success story because they have been able to really um, infuse leadership development um, skills 
among those that are passionate about um, alleviating environmental justice issues and um, arming them with ways that they can then go forth into their communities to to create a structured approach to address some of the challenges that communities are experiencing. Another thing that stood out to me about your research is that you're not just adding more data to the environmental health field, but which is obviously really important, but you're evaluating and researching how programs like the EPA's Environmental Justice Academy are working. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why this kind of research is, is somewhat unique in environmental health research and also why these evaluations are imperative to advance healthier and more just communities. Yeah, so my work with the EJ Academy, um, and when I say EJ, I mean environmental justice, was uh, unique in many aspects. I think the field of environmental justice is very interdisciplinary, but most scientists in this area are experts in environmental health, um, environmental engineering or planning, toxicology, um, and me being a behavioral scientist, I offer a very different lens to this work. I bring a skill set of evaluation Um, And really wanting to understand how participants um, have implemented the learnings into their community projects that they develop to alleviate some of the concerns and how these projects have actually been able to impact environmental change. And so the program was implemented for over four years without any understanding of the true benefits that were being received by the participants um, without really taking any of the um, acknowledging the success stories that the program itself was doing and and instilling these um, skills into the community um, and and helping shape the activists to be able to go forth and make the change and really being able to assess the impacts that they were having in the community. So in the EJ world um, and among many programs at the EPA, historically evaluation has been underutilized because there aren't many social scientists um, like myself or behavioral scientists in this space that really have a skill set. And, you know, largely the reason that you evaluate a program is so that you can identify what you're doing right, what you're doing wrong, how it's really making an impact. And um, I feel like this is definitely a skill set that I bring to um, the world of EJ. And, you know, it could be that many because, you know, environmental injustice, it can be very consuming and, you know, it, evaluation actually takes a lot of time. So it, you know, it, it could be my lens as um, as an outsider or and having this specific skill set can really be valuable to those that are on the on the ground doing the work that necessarily don't have the time um, or the wherewithal to really invest in um, in evaluate in evaluation in, partic- in particular. Having had a, a, a seat both at at the federal level now, looking at federal initiatives and in academia, I'm wondering if you have some of your own ideas, you know, if you had a magic wand or you were in charge, uh, whether it's at the policy or community level that, that, that you would like to see change to better address environmental justice. Well, um, I'll also touch on one additional aspect of my dissertation work. So I had the opportunity um, as in one component to do a systematic review. And I was looking at how um, researchers have engaged with environmental justice communities over the past 30 years, so over the past three decades. And I was applying a capacity building lens to this work to get more of an understanding of um, you know, how they were really 
working with communities or if they were really just working on communities and communities were the body or the target audience, but not really benefiting from the work. And my takeaway from so my, my, I guess my long-winded way to answer your question is more my takeaway from this research is that I was able to identify from an academic lens that there needs to be more intentionality around working with communities that are experiencing environmental inequities. Um, you know, from an academic lens, I think focusing on capacity building is one way of instilling power back into the communities and instilling leadership and arming communities with the knowledge and the skills and the resources so they can mobilize to fight back. And from an academic perspective, um, if your work is only narrowly focused on whatever your academic outcome could be, then you're really not working in collaboration with the community in a more sustainable way. And so when I think about some ideas around addressing environmental um, injustice and environmental racism, um, I would like to frame from my knowledge um, more of a capacity building approach as one way to um, instill power or bring the power that the community has to the forefront to be able to tackle some of the inequities that they're experiencing. That brings me back nicely to the, to the reason we're here, the Agents of Change program. We had a, a few researchers, researchers last round, our first group of fellows, write about this disconnect between a lot of academic research and the communities they're researching and just a lack of integration, uh, a lack of diversity in research, whether it's the researchers themselves or the communities. And, so they were writing about it and, and you're obviously going to uh, write an essay at some point. And I'm wondering what kind of what your experience has been so far up to this point, communicating science to the general public. Uh, and if, if if that is an interest, I'm assuming it is because you're here um, and why you why you think it's important. So I have not had the opportunity to really talk about my work in the way that I feel is most meaningful and beneficial to, um, to communities. I'm, I consider myself to be a community engaged researcher and um, much of my passion around environmental justice again is, is um, has a foundation of my own personal experiences. And so, you know, I, as a, now as a trained behavioral scientist, I have an understanding that in my training, you're, you are taught a certain way to talk about your research. Um, it is you're pulling specifically from your data and you don't have an opportunity really to, um, to translate your work outside of an academic space or outside of an academic journal. And so I haven't really had the opportunity to do that. And I feel like my work can be so beneficial to um, others outside of just academia um, as capacity building is a topic that is highly discussed among many different, among many different disciplines um, and even talked about commonly in the community organizing world and space. Um, and then my lens as um, an evaluator can definitely help to um, do more of measurement and assessment of uh, capacity building approaches. And so I want to be able to talk about this in a meaningful way. And I want to be able to make my work um, 
really be uh, of most benefit to the people that and the organizations and the communities that need it the most. And so I look forward to talking about uh, my research and my expertise, as well as uplifting the actual communities that I've been able to have these conversations with through my dissertation work um, and uplift the wonderful work that they're doing in this space um, and be able to um, infuse some of my expertise in that and talk about it in a way that I haven't been able to in the past. So I look forward to that with this opportunity. And how about social media? Has that has that played a role at all in, in your, uh, it sounds like um, maybe kind of formal formal writing for lay audiences hasn't, mm-hmm. hasn't been as much of a part of your work, but how about use of social media and it, whether you use it and, and kind of what you see the role for social media when it comes to the scientific community, government and advocates? So I don't use social media a lot. I mean, I have, of course, the I have a Twitter account and Instagram and Facebook. Um, but I guess definitely over the past five years, I've been more uh, more invested in my academic work and haven't had much time to really translate my work or. Um, in a social media environment. But I feel like social media is absolutely a, a, an, a fantastic way to connect with a diverse audience, um, as well as widespread um, and more people that you can engage with one-on-one. I think it's a resource I'm not sure that academia has used as often, um, because again, most academics are trained to talk about their work in a very streamlined way um, to other academics in scientific journals. And through social media, I think it's definitely an opportunity to translate your work to a broader audience, um, garner support, as well as solicit other ideas and um, see creative approaches to the way others are doing similar work as yourself. So one more question here out of left field. What is the last book you read for fun? Sounds like you're really busy, but I'm <laughs> sure you worked a book in there somewhere. Oh, my goodness. The last book I read for fun. I So I don't remember the exact title, but it was a Deepak Chopra book. Um, and I think the stresses of, of dissertation, of being a PhD student life has definitely taken a toll. And I was seeking an opportunity to really just find a peaceful place and space um, and wanting to be a little more centered and try to alleviate some of that stress. And so uh, I have turned to just doing a little more meditation and reading some of the works of Deepak Chopra have been very helpful in that way. It worked. (laughs) And now that I've graduated and I'm no longer a PhD student, um, so much of a, so much stress has has been alleviated. So yes, it worked in that way also. (laughs) Well, Dana, this has been really great. I was really awesome to hear about your research and I appreciate you taking time today. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure to talk with you today and share with you some thoughts around my work. That's all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. 
I thought Dana's work was fascinating, and I'm glad people like her are thinking about these issues and bringing communities to the forefront of environmental justice research and advocacy. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit ehn.org and click the big orange donate button. You can also find Agents of Change on Twitter and Instagram or at ehn.org under our Special Projects tab. Please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, and Stitcher, where you can listen to this and all past episodes. The Agents of Change podcast production team is myself, Gwen Raniker, and Raya Hutta. We'd like to hear from you. Email us at agentsofchangeneh at gmail.com with suggestions for the show, questions for the fellows, reviews, or just a chat. And sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the program homepage, agentsofchangeneh.com. Thanks for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Join us next time when I speak with Brianna Benoy, a former Agents of Change fellow now doing clinical research at the Nationwide Children's Hospital. Have a great week.